From beanies to carry bags and from shoes to caps, browse our shop now at tntradio.live. Live from London, you're with Sonia Poulton on today's News Talk TNT. Hello there. I hope you are well. Shiniakwali. Of course, we should start in Mandarin, shouldn't we? Because it's Happy Chinese New Year. It's actually, that is the most formal greeting you're going to get. That's uh, wishing you a New Year's happiness. And why not? Of course, Chinese New Year started on Saturday. 16 days of celebrations. This is the year of the Chinese wood dragon. In Chinese astrology, the dragon is an auspicious creature, magical, mythical, uh, wisdom, good luck, power of the elements of wind and water. In other words, this year is capable of being a boom, extraordinary year. Let's make it so, hey? Um, I recently commented on the court hearing of researcher and filmmaker Richard D. Hall. Well, he's received judgment following his recent high court hearing. Richard was being sued by two people for his claims that his Manchester Arena that the Manchester Arena bombing rather was a staged operation. Richard had made a film about it. He's done talks about it. And as I predicted, the case has been thrown out by the judge, will not proceed to trial. The Hibberts, a father and daughter who were suing Richard, have been awarded summary judgment and costs to be decided at a later hearing. Now, the Hibberts took legal action against Richard for harassment, misuse of private information and data protection. In the ruling, Judge Davidson said that without this early decision, Mr. Hall would, and I quote, use the trial as a vehicle to advance and test his staged attack hypothesis. Mr. Hibbert said Mr. Hall's claims were repugnant and offensive, and I truly am not at all surprised by this outcome. I've been involved in a summary judgment and strikeout hearing before like Richard, and it actually took all day. He had an hour and three quarters. The fact that he was given such a short period of time spoke absolute volumes to me. I couldn't see really how the judge could actually enable his case to proceed because the problem is this official narrative has been established first with an inquiry, um, also with the um, inquest into the alleged bombers, um, death. And I say alleged bombers because people like Richard believe that this didn't happen this way. Um, Richard, as I say, has published extensively that the Manchester Arena attack was a staged attack. He said he had evidence which refutes the official Manchester narrative and justifies an independent investigation. And But the job of the court was to decide whether there was a reasonable ground for a fuller investigation into the facts of the case. And the judge concluded, and I quote again from his judgment, there are no such reasonable grounds. He, the judge said that uh, further evidence and investigation would simply increase the volume of material that a trial judge would have to consider and the time required to do so. But it is clear, says the judgment, that the material will not affect the outcome. Naturally, Richard was not happy with this outcome, disagreed with it. Um, and the thing about a summary judgment, of course, is is, is it's a way to, to get something of a win without examining the full facts of a trial. And Richard is not happy about coverage of it, including the BBC, who let us not forget the BBC were absolutely at the front of this. Um, and 
almost certainly triggered this lawsuit in the first place. And um, because the BBC portrayed it that he had lost, that there had been a win. And the case was not won as such. There was a summary judgment granted. That is different to going to trial where you have all the facts examined. So that hasn't happened. Martin Hibbert said he took the action against Richard Dehaw because of the harassment. He said, he's. I'm pleased with the court's sensible ruling today. I believe everyone is entitled to an opinion. However, there comes a point where the line is crossed and action has to be taken. So let us know in the comments, what are your thoughts um, about that? And how are you today in the comments? How are you? They won't want a trial where the truth may come out, says Chris. And Lord Melbury said, if you're not allowed to give evidence, then that means the justice system is not fit for purpose. Well, the thing about a summary judgment is it really is a very small window into the whole case. And Richard said that he simply was not allowed to present some of his evidence. And uh, I, I mean, honestly, an hour and a half for anybody who knows anything about the legal system, they would laugh at that hour and a half being given for a summary judgment. Honestly, it was a given that that was already decided. That was already decided. And honestly, I truly couldn't believe uh, or couldn't see how the judge could progress it to a full trial because the, the, the official narrative has been established and you'd have to unpack all that. And they don't like doing those things. So I wish you all a wonderful Monday. Of course, you can always contact me at Sonia Poulton at tntradio.live. And uh, this, of course, is the moment where we bring in the wonderful Gemma Cooper. And I will be back with her shortly. There's a lot going on. So it's important to stay informed and up to date. Get ready, because here we go. At the top, 30 minutes past and when it breaks. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. It is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. And it's Monday. And I love Monday as much as I love Friday. Oh, yes, I do. You know why? Because I appreciate, I appreciate, I appreciate every moment, the present. Good morning, Gemma. How are you? Hello there, Sonia. Yeah, nice to start uh, Monday on a positive note, isn't it? We always end it on a positive note on a Friday, and it's good to get the kick the week off here on TNT on a, on a positive start. Yes, definitely. Let's do it. Let's hit this ground running. I feel very empowered with the dragon spirit. I am a dragon in Chinese astrology, by the way. And and Gemma, love your new hair. Love the new do. Love it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I was on. A, I was on with Lembit Opit yesterday on his uh, Sunday show, and I was joking with him that I had my hair done specially. And I think I put him to shame a little bit because he's like, "Oh, well, I, I better go off and get my hair done now." And I was thinking, I didn't get my hair done specially for you, mate. I actually didn't. But he took it as I as if I did. But there we go. There we go. Fabulous. What are you here to talk with us about today? Well, it's very interesting you're talking about official narratives have been established um, because this story, I, I was, I had a story about the, the British Army, actually, Defence Secretary today, is, is it going all out on the, on the woke agenda in our armed forces and an attempt to kind of tighten things up. I'll probably come back to that story later on another show uh, later on on TNT because this story, as I was researching the Army story, came across my radar as breaking news. And I read it and I thought, this has got to be a joke. Um, but then I, I read it through and I realized, no, that's absolutely serious. And, and talk about a, a narratives being dismantled over the last uh, few, four years since the scandemic and the COVID scam. Um, you would have thought that, you know, the, the bulk of the world now, I think, does has seen through what was going on, uh, had nothing to do with health. And it was an agenda for control. I think I think many, many, many people now see it for what it was. But they are desperate still 
<clears throat> to bring this narrative back. Uh, you know, the, the, this, the, the, the controlling forces, elites, if you want to call them that, uh, the, who, those who, you know, ostensibly would like to rule over us. And one of the ways they do it, as you were alluding to them with Richard D. Hall's uh, sham of a, uh, a court case, is, is through the mainstream media. So this story uh, is about something called allegedly called Alaska Pox, Alaska Pox, uh, which has claimed its first ever victim. Uh, uh, details are emerging of this story this morning here in the UK about a man who uh, allegedly uh, contracted this virus. It was first discovered in 2015 in Fairbanks, Alaska, which is why it's called Alaska Pox. Uh, and this man, he was admitted to hospital last year. He noticed a red tender bump on his arm. He was given some antibiotics, according to the Alaska Department of Health. Uh, he got progressively worse, uh, complaining of fatigue, pain in his armpit, he was then hospitalized in November uh, and the CDC tested him. CDC in America tested him. He tested positive for this Alaska pox uh, and then died of malnutrition uh, and kidney and respiratory failure at the end of last month. And the details are just coming out now. Now, they're, they're, they're struggling to find how he contracted this uh, virus. Uh, from the same family, coincidentally, as monkeypox, uh, which we all know was, you know, brought in a couple of years ago to scare the bejesus out of everybody, but it didn't work. Um, and this Alaska pox, one of the theories, the only theory they can clutch at is that he got it from a cat, which uh, a stray cat, which he was caring for at his house in the woods just outside of Anchorage. Allegedly, I don't know how they knew this, but the cat scratched him uh, before he he got this rash and he got it from this cat. Now, I don't know if you remember in 2010, there was an episode in The Simpsons where they have house cat flu, which locks the entire planet down and there's a vaccine for it and only a limited number of, of vaccines are available and everybody has to be extremely afraid. Now, talk about predictive programming, but this has got the hallmarks of this of this of this Simpsons episode all over it. So I went back just before I came on air and I looked at the clip, which is doing the rounds. You know, you can find that on, on YouTube of this house cat flu. And I watched it and I thought this is all tying in. I know it sounds a bit kind of spurious, but really it, you know, Alaska pox from a cat. You know, are they trying to are they trying to prime us for something else four years on after that narrative started to crumble? You know, and and, and cats are everywhere. Uh, you know, everybody likes them or has got one or the neighbors got one. Is this a kind of very, very spurious attempt to scare us? Because when you look at the comments underneath the story that is doing the rounds, people are very switched on to this. People are saying, how is this story, uh, which is one person living out in the woods in a remote part of the of, of, of America, um, suddenly dying of this uh, Alaska pox. It's been picked up by every media outlet that is owned by the same parent company. And suddenly everyone this morning is running this story the, who is owned by this particular corporation. Now, you know how the mainstream media works. You've been in it. Me too. Press release is issued. The news editor gets the nod. You don't, you know, people decide what stories run. And this story is running as breaking news this morning. First victim of Alaska pox from a cat, house cat flu, is doing the rounds. Now, it's, I'm bringing this to the table because we talk about narratives, how narratives are built up, established in the public consciousness, just like the Manchester bombing story. And then they get dismantled only because people have the ability to see through them to dismantle them themselves. Uh, and which is exactly why you're quite right. The judge wouldn't have Richard D. Hall having his moment in court where he could stand because he's very analytical. He pre produces forensic evidence. And so I just think this could be and I don't think it will work, a very spurious attempt uh, by mainstream media with health authorities to release this kind of story into the public consciousness. He got it from a cat. 
you know, everyone just go and watch The Simpsons. You'll know how this ends. But yeah, that's the story I'm bringing to the table this morning about how narratives are built. But hopefully this one dismantled extremely quickly, as the comments underneath it seem to suggest. I think with your knowledge and your experience, it's so important that you bring that to the table and show people exactly, as you say, how narratives are built, because it can start off with the smallest thing like this one man in a wood with a cat. And suddenly, before we know it, people are going to be wrestling over loo rolls in Tesco. Right. And so we know how this works, Gemma. So it is important. But how many have they tried now over the last four years? So they tried monkeypox, obviously, didn't they? They 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 tried to get to bring in bird flu, I think, as well, didn't they, at one stage? So so that was COVID-19, monkeypox, bird flu. So we've now got Alaska pox. And, and my thing is, who names these things? Who decides that this was from Alaska when the man is in Anchorage, did you say? Which Just is that side is that, of Anchorage. That's, that's Alaska. Yeah, that's Alaska. That is Alaska. City. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. But, but who decides these things? Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, who, who chose that this is a thing? Why isn't this something else? Why hasn't this man picked up something else that already exists? Did you just, uh, so what is it about? My question really is always, what to what end? To what purpose? Is this more about scaring us, about, you know, creating the continued fear in us? Um, I talked to Dr. Bruce Scott recently and he talked about menticide. I don't know if you, you know about menticide, but it's like a form of gaslighting. But it's this really. They inject an idea and just enable it to grow and they keep adding to it. So before we know, we'll have Piers Morgan and all manner of things telling us that we need a vaccine. That's probably what it's about, Gemma. Okay, I got there eventually. Do you think that's do you think that's con continually what it's about a lot of the time is just building up the coffers for big pharma? I think if that yes, I do think that's the thing. Um, but I, I think it's uh, it's it's another drip feed of something that you know this is one thing, one case coming out of Alaska from a cat. Well, four years ago it was a few cases coming out of China from a bat. You know the the parallels are so obvious. Um, but the the parallel that I drew straight away is that I thought this is why I thought it was a joke. I thought, oh my God, this is the episode of The Simpsons from you know years and years ago now. House cat flu. You know, go and watch it, everybody, mm -hmm. if you haven't seen it already. Mm -hmm. Although. I'm sure people that, you know, tune into TNT are very, very familiar with that predictive programming and that episode of The Simpsons, which we, you know, predictive programming is absolutely a thing. Um, but yeah, I think it's a drip, drip feed of, you know, what can we get them with? You know, the, the COVID narrative, which was so, you know, established and embedded has now crumbled. Um, and like you say, monkeypox, that didn't quite work. So we know I've got Alaska pox from a cat. Let's see if that works. Because, you know, as, as very astute comments under the story are pointing out, suddenly, one media corporation, which owns a lot of media publications, is suddenly mm -hmm. now running this story as breaking news. So it doesn't come from nowhere. News doesn't come from nowhere. It's not arbitrary. It's very, very, very considered and it's very carefully crafted on a daily basis by teams of producers and news editors and executive news editors and owners of stations and bosses of papers. It, that's how narratives are established. You couldn't do it any other way. Um, but people aren't falling for it. It's very interesting looking at these comments that, you know, Alaska Pox from a cat is uh, is not having the same effect as four years ago, China wet markets from a bat. 
And don't forget, um, famously, newspapers also use um, platforms in this way if, if they have their own vested interests in the background. And I refer famously to the Daily Mirror, whose City Slickers comment um, pushed through that slick City Slickers comment, you know, um, different agendas, and then they were able to make money off the back of it. So it, there's no saying that these, you know, these corporate billionaires, these media moguls haven't also got some sort of investment in a vaccine that's currently being developed for Alaska pox. So all these things are highly plausible these days, shockingly so. Gemma, thank you for bringing that to the table. It's really important for us to see how narratives are crafted. And uh, it's Gemma Cooper, and I'll be back shortly. TNT's Misty Winston. She says, how is anyone still talking about October 7th? What Israel has done since October 7th is many times worse than what happened on that day by any conceivable metric. The only way to feel otherwise is to believe Israeli lives are worth many times more than Palestinian lives. How is Israeli suffering still being centered over vastly less significant acts of violence three months ago, while ex exponentially worse violence and suffering is being inflicted by Israelis right this very moment? If your nation is attacked and you respond to that attack by immediately murdering thousands of children with incredible savagery, then you forfeit any right to expect anyone to give a shit that your nation was attacked. Israel responded to the Hamas attack by doing something much, much worse than anything Hamas has ever done. And in doing so, completely delegitimizing itself as a state and completely validating everything the Palestinian resistance has been saying about the state of Israel since day one. Misty Winston on today's News Talk TNT. Radio works because of its ability to personalize to the listener. What's exciting these days is that people are rediscovering it. You know, people are really rediscovering just how powerful radio is, how ubiquitous it is. It's in our cars, it's in our homes. There are so many new ways to access it. It's everywhere. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. Today's News Talk Radio. I do a lot of streaming radio. I do a lot of free streaming. tntradio.live. Now, last is... Last December, Julian Assange's two-day hearing was announced for February 20 and 21st at the UK High Court to determine whether Julian will have permission to appeal or whether he will be extradited to the United States. And TNT will be at the Royal Courts of Justice broadcasting and covering the entire two days if required. Then TNT will broadcast from various locations throughout London. And you know why? Because we are light in the fuse for freedom, because this is today's news talk, TNT. And on that note, I'm delighted to welcome my first guest, or second, obviously, if you count Gemma, um, and that is he's Alistair McLeod. Good morning, Alistair. How are you? Good morning, Sonia. I'm well. Wonderful to have you with us. Alistair is head of research for Gold Money. He's an educator for sound money and demystifying finance and economics. I can barely say it. It sounds so impressive. <laughs> I love the idea of demystifying finance and money, Alistair. It, it, it is a bit of a mess for many people, isn't it? Yeah, it's a huge mess, Sonia. And, uh, you know, the problem is that the whole of the um, community, if, if you like, of economists, mainstream economists, don't actually understand the difference between money and credit. And that as a starting point makes it almost impossible for everybody else. So I've got my work cut out. Well, I wanted, uh, I'm very glad you're here with us today. I've talked with you many times before, and I really wanted some sort of idea of our global finances, where we're up to. And I picked some of the, the main stories that I, I saw that you had some interest in. So let's start off with the USA. I noticed that the headlines were not so euphoric. Is it true that the USA is on the brink of bankruptcy? 
Alistair, is that possible? Uh, well, it is certainly possible. I mean, it's the way every fiat currency regime ends. The way to look at um, uh, America's finances is that the US government is in a debt trap. A debt trap basically is a situation which uh, spirals out of control. If you look at the deficit, the budget deficit last year, allowing for a little bit of creative accounting over student loans, was roughly $2 trillion. This year, I think it will be roughly $3 trillion. It could even be more. And remember, this is an election year when the incumbent president will tend to spend as much as he can get away with in order to attract votes. And uh, not only that, but the Republicans will, I think the word is boondoggle. You know, basically, they will put forward all their propositions to get their support. And there is no debt ceiling in place until the 1st of January 2025. So guess what? They'll just make hay, run the, you know, the magic money tree as quickly as they can until they have to lock it in. So this, I, I wouldn't be surprised if at the end of this um, uh, uh, calendar year, because remember the fiscal year, which is what we're talking about. But if you run it through the next to, to the end of the calendar year, I wouldn't be surprised if that debt ceiling is fixed at around about 40 trillion. At the moment, it's about 34. That is the degree of acceleration in America's debt problem. That is what you've got to look at. Forget all the other statistics. They really don't matter. And that, believe it or not, Sonia, is what will drive up the cost of borrowing for virtually everybody. That plus the banks are very cautious about lending to businesses. So, you know, the, the, the amount of credit available for uh, genuine um, economic investment is um, that's being squeezed. That's not there. So it's a rather nasty combination leading to recession, slump, debt crisis uh, for the US government, etc. So hmm, what's too like? I can't find anything too like in that mix. Ooh. Oh, dear. We're always, Alistair, now here's the thing, and I'm coming from a really naive perspective. I don't claim to be an economist. But here's the thing. We're always told we're like trillions in debt. But who are we in debt to? Well, uh, that's a very good question, Sonia. I mean, the problem is uh, you've got to think in terms of who are the marginal prices of debt. Now, the foreigners basically own roughly $32 trillion of, um, well, of dollars and, and dollar financial assets. Um, now, I think around about seven trillion of that is is U.S. government debt. So, you know, we're looking at around about a quarter of the debt is owned by foreigners. They're the people who will price it in the market. And the big, big um, uh, investors who are China and Japan are now selling. So, you know, I mean, as this situation develops over the course of this year, I think that uh, it's going to be increasingly difficult for the US government to fund itself. I, I remember this situation in the UK in the 1970s when um, bond yields were driven up to over 15%. Now, you know, just imagine what 15% bond yields would do to US government finances. I mean, it's, it, it would be catastrophic. I'm not saying it will go to 15%, but I'm just saying that is the danger. I actually personally don't think it'll stop at 15%. But anyway, that is opinion rather than than anything more substantial. So uh, Russia, let's look at Russia. The, so the, Russia's had a hard time, right? It was, so we've had obviously sanctions, which has had a, a tr will have had a tremendous draining effect on Russia. But Russia apparently is doing better than expected in the money markets. Why is this? Well, sanctions don't necessarily have that negative effect. Um, you know, basically the economy responded uh, by um, replacing 
the things that which it needed, if you like. I mean, forget the fripperies like, you know, Bentleys and Rolls Royces. Uh, so on that basis, sanctions never, never work. So you can forget that. I think the point to make about uh, the Russian economy is that it's diametrically opposed in terms of its outlook with the US economy. Uh, now, what I mean by that, if you look at the debt to GDP level, debt to GDP in Russia, after all this war spending, is projected to hit somewhere between 21 and 22%. Now that compares with America over 120% at the moment and rising and on my prognostications, probably getting up towards 140, 150%. I mean, look at it from the point of view of um, the ordinary Russian in business. Uh, what's, you know, um, what's the tax rate? Well, it's 13% is income tax rate. It rises to 15% admittedly, but that is that, that is it. Compared with us, um, you know, in the West, I mean, you know, th this is a dream, really. And on top of that, um, you've got, um, uh, you know, I mean, the, you've got an economy which is now in terms of purchasing power parity. And this is according to the World Bank or the IMF, one of those bodies, is now um, uh, uh greater than Germany. Um, this is like sort of the fifth largest economy in the world. Admittedly, it's very much resource-based and it needs to evolve away from that. But you can see that its starting point, even in the midst of a war, is uh, remarkably strong. And of course, you don't get that in the mainstream media who are absolutely gung-ho on you know, calling them evil and all the rest of it. They may well be evil, but that's not the point. The point is that they've actually got their economic house in order, a lot more than we have anyway. Well, that's exactly the point of today's News Talk TNT. Exactly that reason is to show the media that isn't being shown by legacy media. And of course, it's all about doing down Russia and telling us we're at war with Russia. But actually, you're coming here and saying, actually, they're doing really well and their standard of living is fairly decent, and uh, which is not what we hear at all. Alistair, not what we hear at all. Listen, I'm just going to park this for a second. We're going to go to the news headlines and uh, we will be back shortly. Do not go away. This news just in TNT Radio News. Ready? Go, go, go. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. Former US Secretary of State Hillary Clinton has been heckled by pro-Palestinian protesters at an event in New York. The brother of dead pedophile Jeffrey Epstein's released a never-before-seen photo of his autopsy, which he claims proves the sex trafficker didn't kill himself. And SpaceX CEO Elon Musk has denied claims by Ukraine that he has been supplying his Starlink satellite internet service to Russian troops on the front line. Why not give TNT Radio a follow? We're on all major social platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Gab and Getter. Help us get the word out as we cover the biggest topics of our time right here on today's News Talk. TNT Radio. TNT Radio. I'm here with Alistair McLeod of Gold Money, and uh, we, we're talking about global finances and why ever not, because we're all impacted by them. And Alistair was just explaining to us that Russia is doing a great deal better than has been expected or has been projected in mainstream media. So let's have a look at what's going on in the UK, Alistair. The last time I think you and I had a conversation, I think Liz Truss was still the prime minister. She lasted for something, 50 something days, hardly any time at all. Why was her period so short, Alistair? Well, the problem basically is that, um, you know, she was pursuing in one sense, the right policies, but uh, what, it, what was lacking was uh, the attempt to curtail public spending. 
Um, if you don't run a budget deficit, then effectively you create inflation. And um, we've still got that legacy, incidentally, in America. But, you know, let's we've, we've put that to one side. Um, this is a problem, I, fa I think, facing uh, the Chancellor today, that um, there's still this reluctance to deal with the public spending issue. Um, there's everybody, every department, you know, that they just want more and more money. The councils are going bust. They need more money and so on. Um, they're not tackling that. And of course, when you get to an election year, the last thing a politician wants to do is to be Mr. Nasty Man. So <laughs> uh, they are in a bind. And um, uh, I mean, Liz Truss, Truss's experience, I think, just shows how important it is to control the spending. You can cut taxes, yes, but you need to get that spending down first. I mean, Sonia, we cannot afford the government we have. That is the fundamental oh. problem that needs to be addressed. <laughs> And so say all of us. That's an interesting point you you raise, obviously, about councils going bust. I think at the last count, we're now up to number eight of UK councils filing yeah. for bankruptcy, which is a fairly outrageous experience. What are we doing with our money, Alistair? We pay enough in taxes. It's all these green initiatives, isn't it? Well, it's not just the green initiatives. I mean, basically, the welfare state now um, has expanded to the point where everybody expects to be looked after. Um, you know, we don't want to go to work. We just stay at home. We just take take the, you know, the, the payouts, whatever, whatever. You know, um, we've all got um, uh, um, mental problems and so on. I mean, the whole thing is just degenerated into this sort of self-pitying um, uh, environment amongst uh, the majority of people who should be out there working and producing things. And it's not a happy situation either for them or for the economy. And that, I think, Sonia, is, is you know, this is um, a huge problem, which, of course, uh, Jeremy Hunt, um, I think, I don't think he can deal with it. I mean, any, any cut in taxes is going to be purely cosmetic, really. <clears throat> and you can, you know, so you can forget that. I mean, I'm afraid that the tax problem, as long as they don't uh, address the spending side, the tax problem is just going to get worse and worse and worse for us. I mean, the thing is, is that you talk about the welfare system. I'm a huge supporter of the welfare system and always have been, having been raised on it as a child to a single parent. And so I'm more than happy to input into it for anybody who needs it. My biggest problem, Alistair, is to do with tax evasion and tax avoidance. We're losing far more there than we are through welfare, right? No, I don't agree with you. Um, I mean, basically, oh. the the... The way the way um, the tax system works is you take someone else's uh, income and assets and redistribute it to someone else. Now that basically is economically destructive, and you can you can do that to an extent. Now I, I would hasten to add that uh, I think we can all agree that welfare is needed, but the point is that the welfare that is provided should be strictly limited. Um, nobody wants to see um, an economy where there are, um, you know, people, if you like, who are, you know, starving and all the rest of it. Of course, we don't want to see that. People in genuine need, um, you know, there has to be some sort of mechanism for supporting them. Uh, but, you know, we've gone way beyond that. I mean, the whole psychology of the situation uh, is, um, uh, you know, destructive of government finances. That is the problem we have got ourselves into. And if you look, you know, we go back to Russia. Why has why has the Russian government only got a debt to GDP of 20%? Well, the answer basically is they don't uh, provide all this welfare for their people. Are their people suffering as a result? 
Well, I mean, we don't live in Russia, so we don't really know, but I guess not. I mean, there's there always going to be a hardship. Um, but to make that excuse uh, to, um, uh, you know, sort of extend uh, um, uh, welfare to everybody on the basis that a few might be suffering is um, it's, it's the economics of nonsense. It really is. Oh, I can see that Alistair and I come a completely different place on that, but that's all right, you know, because we're allowed to disagree. We're allowed to disagree. That is the world we live in. So, Alistair, the thing, the interesting thing is, is that so I was listening to Christine Lagarde. Obviously, she's the president of the European Central Bank, and she was talking about climate change and and in terms of banking and how we must now reconsider our practices and including banknotes. So this is her really. She's pitching, isn't she? Here, she's saying central bank digital currency, cashless society. So that's what's going on here, I suspect, from her talk. What about you? Well, yeah, I mean, she. <laughs> I mean, I'm afraid the ECB has gone horribly woke. Um, <clears throat> their problem, I think, is actually going to be survivability because uh, th they are technically bankrupt. I mean, if the directors of the ECB, the governors of ECB, uh, were a private sector enterprise, they would all be in jail by now. I mean, make no mistake about it. Um, and not only that, but the directors of all the national central banks within the euro system, same thing. I mean, the Bundesbank has a problem. How are you going to recapitalize this? I know how to recapitalize a central bank. Um, we won't go into that. That's a bit too sort of um, uh, nerdy. But um, you know, the way the system works, the way the system works is that the, the national central banks have to recapitalize themselves, and then they have to have sufficient uh, left over to recapitalize the ECB. Um, now, I can just see the debate on the floor of um, the German Parliament in, in 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 Berlin. You know, some idiot politician stands up and says, "Well, look, hold on a minute. You're asking for one and a half trillion euros, or whatever the figure." is um and uh, yet uh, under target two system you the bundesbank are owed over a trillion why can't you dip into that oh my goodness me you can see how this whole thing could end up in a quagmire and i think actually that um the long-term future of the ecb is dead so forget about all this digital currency stuff i mean as far as they're concerned i don't think they'll ever get there Really? You don't think, but, but it's already in place, isn't it? Central bank digital currency. They've already at least started from like 2017, where they were start, starting to put things in place in order to be able to do it. So you're saying we won't have them? Yeah, well, it's still in the planning stage. I mean, I think that's 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 the point. And, um, you know, uh, the way it works is actually laid out by the Bank of International Settlements. Um, interestingly, the Bank of England came in with its version, which really um, uh, did not follow the uh, Bank of International Settlements model at all. You know, like everybody has an account at the Bank of England, you know, businesses and individuals, and the Bank of England dishes out the cash and says, look, you know, that you're going to have this cash for literally the next three weeks. And if you don't spend it, we'll take it back sort of thing. That's the whole thing. So that it becomes a centrally planned economy. But I mean, it's, you know, if it's, it's based on pounds, euros, dollars, whatever, whatever, then it's rather like the French situation at the time of the revolution. You know, the Assignia, um collapsed and that was replaced by another fiat currency called the Mandat Territorio. And that collapsed within months. I mean, I, I can't see any difference between what, uh, you know, this, this sort of proposed uh, CBDC and existing currencies. And they're all credits on you. And they're all credit guaranteed in terms of value by our faith in it. And if we lose faith, it doesn't matter what the quantity, 
it goes down the swanee. And that's a reality of it. And I just don't see these CBDCs even starting, apart from anything else. I mean, just imagine all the committees and the, you know, all the backtesting and all the rest of it that's got to happen in order for this to be properly introduced. And we don't really know what it is, quite, quite honestly. I mean, what's the difference? Um, so, uh, you know, this is going to take years. Um, we don't have that time. We've got a debt crisis now. And it's not just America, it's also half of Europe. I mean, we're sort of approaching 100% debt to GDP as well. And, you know, I mean, you know, we could deal with it, but we're not going to deal with it because it requires substantial cuts in public spending. It requires a complete rethink of the role of government. Are we going to do that? Are we hellers like it? Oh, I wish we would. Uh, thank you, Alistair. Very much appreciate what you have to say. Lord Melbury said, debt forgiveness from the banks is the way forward. I suspect that is another longer conversation to have with Alistair <laughs> at another day. Everybody, this has been Alistair McLeod of Gold Money. Thank you so much for joining us this morning on today's News Talk TNT. I will be right back. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. My company, weatherbell.com, already has a hurricane season from hell predicted for the United States next year. We're expecting three to five major landfalling hurricanes. We parallel or correlate next year to 2005, 2017, 2020. Now, we've had this out since December, been speculating on what could happen with this upcoming hurricane season since last hurricane season. A lot of this is because of the climate hypothesis I've developed. And it's interesting, I'm starting to see people tiptoe toward what my company, weatherbell.com, is had out. I do think it will turn into a stampede. The current El Nino is going to collapse rapidly in the spring, reverse to a La Nina. The main development region of the Atlantic is still very, very warm, except this year, it's not as warm in the North Atlantic. Now, what does that mean? Well, whenever it's not as warm in the North Atlantic and it's warmer near the equator, it means that the heat gets to incubate, as I call it, or bunch up in the areas that are the main development region. Last year, we saw storms developing and just going up north in the Atlantic and staying away from the United States. I don't believe that's the case this year. In addition, in looking at forecasted rainfall patterns for the upcoming hurricane season, we look at the Pacific and we see that from the Indian Ocean into the Western Pacific, it looks like phase two and three of the Madden-Julian oscillation. All the major hurricanes that have hit the United States that have developed within two days of the U.S. coast since 2017 have hit in phase two or three of the Madden-Julian oscillation. So here we are in February, reviewing our forecast from December and we'll see who's right. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog, meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you got. I'm Sandra, this is Jorge, and we were adopted in 2019. I remember when they first came to us, Michael was already a teenager. The whole cliche of they're so lucky to have you guys and it's no. the other way around. They have changed our family for the better. They chose to love us. They didn't have to. They chose us. Family. Learn about adopting a teen from foster care. You can't imagine the reward. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. This is the Sonia Poulton Show on today's News Talk. TNT. Of course, we've been covering all the farmers' protests around the world, and they are growing exponentially day by day, which is absolutely fantastic because, as we all know, 
This is about so much more than farming. And I am delighted to be joined today by Kareen Knappen from Brussels. She's a legal expert and attorney at law. And Kareen is writing some incredibly brilliant stuff on X, which I found absolutely fascinating. I'm very interested in listening and, and hearing people from all around the world regarding these farmers' protests. Welcome, Kareen. Thank you for joining us on today's News Talk. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. We really appreciate it. So the farmers' protests, you support them, right? Absolutely do. And why is that? Well, there is a major problem. You know, there are strikes now and demonstrations in about 15 countries uh, within the EU uh, in, in, in Great Britain as well, uh, and in Wales and in Scotland. Uh, the farmers are softly but surely killed. They have to close down their businesses. They don't get anything anymore for uh, the crops and the fruits that they produce. So it's 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 yeah, it's a disaster. It's an absolutely disaster. And the EU is imposing very severe rules, which are uh, incorporated in national law in all the countries, and they just can't cope with it anymore. And the problem is, um, you know, for me, if I would be a minister, the first thing I would do is check whether there is a problem before seeking for a solution. And that's the whole point. They don't do so. And that's how we know this is about something else. This is obviously they've pinned this on the back of the whole green agenda. But this is really about the UN uh, 2030 sustainable development. To me, this is a Trojan horse and it's all about buying up farmland. Did, 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 would you agree with that to, to, to yeah, a point? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. And my belief they are trying to um, put the everything with what, what falls under the, the label of agriculture uh, in the hands of a couple of corporations and the little farmers, they have to close their doors. And they all do it with, you know, the, the excuse that it's for nature, it's good for the forests and, 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 and so on. But, you know, when you look at the EU regulations, there is already 4% of the agricultural land that is not longer allowed to be uh, uh, used. You know, they have just to leave it there. How is Brussels reacting to this? I know that uh, last week you went to a gathering at the, with the, the, at the Ministry of Agriculture. There were farmers there. What, what was taking place at that meeting? Well, it was a meeting with the national minister from Belgium, huh? because when you say Brussels, people often think that we are talking about the EU, but it wasn't. Yes, true. Belgium. Well, the minister came, in fact, to have a, a, a chat with, uh, with all the, the farmers. Uh, to explain the new regulations and it was a very emotional session because there were farmers who had prepared a letter, a very emotional letter up front because, you know, they, they, they knew they would not be able to express themselves uh, during the meeting. So they read the letters and, and it was awful, often to listen that young people, you know, between the age of 28, 36, what problems they, they do encounter on, on a daily basis uh, that they do not make money anymore, that they are not longer allowed to, to build their lands as, as they would want to do or were allowed to do so in the past. And I was, I was shocked because our Minister of, of uh, Agriculture is not aware 
that everything is based on a lie. On a lie. So I took the floor when he finished, you know, his speech. I took the floor to explain a couple of things to him, but I didn't have the impression that he he listened that or that that he cared. You know, the thing is, Sonia, if there would be a problem, I would be the first to help to seek a solution, but there is no problem. You know, there's barely, I suppose you know that, but barely 0.4%, 0.04% of our atmosphere is CO2, of which 4%, 4% of those 0.04% CO2 is due to humans. Okay, and you know CO two is necessary for 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 planet Earth uh, and for nature. Be below zero point zero two percent, life on Earth, Earth extincts and we die. You know, people seem to forget that we need oxygen to live, to 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 breathe, to live. The trees convert uh, CO two into oxygen. Oceans too, the plankton in the oceans too. So there is no CO two problem, and there is no nitrogen problem either. You know, and the minister explained that the farmers in Belgium are allowed to use a maximum 22 kilograms of uh, nitrogen per acre uh, in Belgium. An acre is bigger in, with us than the American acre. Eh? It's twice as much. So, but you know, nitrogen is also necessary for nature because, you know, it, it, it ensures that it, you have a good growth, that, that, that the roots are strong, that you have good crops. Uh, more production, uh, so there is no problem, not with one and not with the other. So I truly don't understand what Europe is doing with its green deal and and the cutting of all the agriculture and all the the farmer businesses and so on. It's it's there is another agenda, as you say, and we have to fight this because our future depends on it. No farmers, no food. I mean, it really is that simple, isn't it? And, and it's also uh, 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 unquestionable that mainstream media has literally turned its back on these farmers' protests. I mean, I, I find that extraordinary. What do you think about that? Well, I don't know what, what, what is broadcasted in the UK, but in Belgium and in Holland, because I followed the news in Holland as well, they say hardly a word about it, you know. There is a major problem. In 15 countries, there are protests and strikes, and, and, the, and the mainstream media just don't report about it. They don't. And, and, and the problem is, is because what you're saying, okay, that there isn't a problem with CO2 and nitrogen, that's completely contrary to the message that mainstream media are pushing, because mainstream media, of course, are pushing the UN Sustainable Development 2030 agenda. So what you're saying is completely contrary to that. So it, it would be a problem. But I think you consider the whole thing a bit of a scam, really, don't you? Yeah, it is because what I'm saying is proven. It's proven beyond any reasonable doubt there have been judicial hearings in the United States where the chairman of the commission uh, asked the question to all the people who were present in the room. You know, you know, there were like six people, high officials from the ministry that is responsible for climate, climate change. And he asked them, he said, you know, you are going to invest like hundreds of billions of dollars reduce the, the, the global temperature with 0.036 degrees. So at least can you tell me what the problem is, how much CO2 is in our atmosphere? And they just didn't know, you know, one said, oh, 5%, the other said 10%. And then the chairman said, no, gentlemen, it's 
0.04%. So nobody knows all these officials, the officials who are well paid with our tax money, they just don't know. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the way, I mean, the farmers have demonstrated in all manner of ways, haven't they? They've closed down motorways, they've dumped manure, they've hurled eggs, uh, gone for supermarkets and, uh, and there have sometimes been violent clashes with the police. But I get the impression from uh, certainly police that I've talked to, many police are in support of what the farmers are going through because people can oh, actually see. And I, yeah, I think we're are in a different era now. Okay, in the UK as well, because in Belgium they are, they are very supportive. Yeah, they yeah. are. I don't think they are so openly in the UK, but I've talked to police behind the scenes and they, they're like, no, we, you know, we get what's going on. People do understand what's going on. And I think that maybe if they'd have tried to pull this stunt on us five years ago, right, we, we might have been unable to see it. But because of COVID and all the lies that we've have been revealed, I think people are waking up on a sort of exponential level. Is that your experience? Yes, yes, there is an awakening. You know, at, at the site of the World Economic Forum, they talk about a great reset. And I'm always saying since a couple of years already, it's the great awakening. People are fed up with it, Sonia. It's it's too much, you know, they're pushing their agenda too hard. Uh, and other market, market segments are also raising their voices now because in Belgium and in Holland, the fishermen are also joining uh, uh, the movement. And so what's the general... Something must happen because this is absolutely not okay. A hundred percent. And the thing is, what's the general atmosphere in Belgium for the protesting? Well, the majority of the people are not aware because they only watch television, you know, mainstream media. And if the mainstream media don't say a word about it, they don't know anything about it. You have to go to alternative media like uh, XX platform. Or, or Telegram and, and so on, to see images, to see footage of, of what's actually going on in other countries, because they don't say a word about it. And people should be wondering why not, why not? Why, why is nothing said about it? Why is this important to you? You're obviously not a farmer, you're an attorney at law. So, but why is this important to you to get involved? Because, it's, it's our future, Sonia. You know, as I said, no farmers, no food. We have, we have the responsibility to ensure that our children and grandchildren have a future, you know, because once the farmers have disappeared, it's, it's over, it's done. How were they able to focus so strongly on cows? I mean, that's a huge argument, isn't it? The whole methane argument. And, and that has gained some serious traction. Serious writers in the UK who write about these issues push this. Yeah, but the thing is, you know what's so strange? Cows only produce CO2 in Europe, but they don't in, in the uh, Arab countries, you know? <laughs> Uh, like thousands of, of, of Dutch cows have, have been transported to uh, United Emirates of Arabia, where they produce milk. And the crazy thing is they produce milk over there. The CO2 output is not a problem. And then the milk is re-imported to, to Holland, to, to the Netherlands. It's absolutely crazy. You know, they, they are imposing lots of rules. Uh, we, we have to eat insects instead of meat. Uh, 
you know, the, the, the livestock must disappear, must be reduced uh, to the maximum and so on. And then in all other continents of the world, like in Asia and China and, and uh, Arab countries, there there is no CO2 problem. So what are we doing? You know, either there is a problem and the problem is global, either the, there is not, not a problem, it's just in, in, in Western countries, because the, the problem is not, not only in, in Europe, eh? in the United States, they are also destroying uh, farm farmland, far, farmer facilities, uh, uh, chicken houses, uh, eggs, and, and, and so on. It's, it's really a topic that's only on the agenda in the West. It, it is quite shocking. What are your thoughts on Bill Gates? <laughs> Do you have a couple of hours? <laughs> yes, and, and we might have a bleeper yeah. handy as well. <laughs> yeah, the, the thing is, he has bought large parts of farmland in the United States. He's the largest owner of farmland now in the United States. Uh, he doesn't do anything with the land, it just lay, lays there. Um, I don't know, you know, he, he's, he's, he's in, into the business, he has invested in the business of fake eggs. Uh, right. Another business, uh, the, the mosquito thing. Uh, uh, you know, there's a lot to say about this man, you know. If I have to limit myself to, to the agriculture part, I can be short. Uh, but there's a lot to say, to say about him in general. <laughs> I, I mean, I definitely don't feel he's one of us. And this is one of the things that I really resent about how these protests have been portrayed is because they, they, they're seeking to make the farmers the enemies of the people, right? No doubt about it. Demonize those farmers. That's what's going on when, in fact, the people we should be demonizing are the ones who get to sit on TV and tell us how to run our world. But have you noticed that, the demonization of the farmers? Of course, that's, that's a tactic they always uh, use. What they're doing right now to oppose the population against the farmers, all the shelves in the supermarkets are empty. I don't right. know, is it, is it the case in the UK as well? The prices have gone up, you know, yes. they have doubled, tripled, sometimes it's even four or five more, five times more expensive than before. And now since there are strikes, suddenly there's nothing more in, in on the shelves. And that, that is also a big fat, fat lie because we are in the middle of the winter, so all the vegetables and the fruits that we find the supermarket markets nowadays, they come from abroad, you know, they come from Africa and from Brazil and, and, and so on. There's hardly Indeed. anything to find, you know, maybe potatoes and onions, but that, that's about it. So I think yeah. they do it on purpose so that the people get upset against the farmers and, and demand that, that, it, that the strikes and the demonstrations would end. Absolutely. Politicians, of course, also are against the farmers. Absolutely. Corrine, I'm going to have to stop you there, but thank you so much for joining us this morning. We really appreciate it. Give my love to Belgium. Take good care of yourself, everybody. Okay. This is Corrine Knappen. She's a legal Bye. expert and totally in support of the farmers, as indeed we all are. Yeah. Take good care of yourself, Corrine. God bless you. Take care. Bye. And uh, this brings Bye. us to the end of Monday's show. And why not give TNT Radio a follow? We're on all the major social platforms, including Facebook, X, Instagram, Gab and Getter. Help us get the word out as we cover the biggest topics of our time right here on today's News Talk TNT. I want to thank 
all of my guests today, Alistair McLeod, Kareen Knapp, and of course, our lovely Gemma. Thank you out there for all of your messages. Keep them coming in. Keep making suggestions about uh, guests and we will pursue them. And uh, as, as for me, I'm off to enjoy my Monday. Have a fantastic day and I will see you tomorrow. Take excellent, excellent care of yourself.